Greetings, welcome to the Andy Social Podcast, episode, hmm, I don't know what number episode this is. I've stopped saying uh, the number of the episode quite a while ago because, well, I just record these all over the shop whenever I've got some time and, uh, yeah, the the order kind of gets thrown out of whack. So uh, no idea what episode this will be, but uh, this one is uh, is quite a good one, actually. It's... Um, an old friend of mine, which um, I'll touch on a bit because I'm, I'm I feel extremely guilty and, and horrible, but um, I'll I'll tell you why in a sec. But uh, the guest this week is uh, Sinclair Newey, and uh, and Sinclair's um, from Brisbane, lives in Brisbane, and was in the band that I played in before joining Lord. Uh, band was called Sedition, and. Uh, Sinclair's baby, uh, it's his his band and writes the majority of the music, or if not all of the music, and uh, released a couple of a couple of albums locally and uh, and some really good stuff. Very very Iron Maiden and Queens uh sort of stuff. And um, I was in the band for a very short period of time before before joining Lord. And and uh, after I moved to Sydney about ten years ago, I didn't really keep in, in a great deal of contact with uh, with him and, and and a number of other people up in Brisbane. Just not not for any particular reason, but I think we just everyone just got busy and and distracted and, and caught up in their own worlds, and that was it. And a few years ago, I I remember somebody making a comment in passing that Sinclair wasn't well. Um, but there wasn't a lot of detail as to what had happened or anything like that. And at that point in time, I don't know what was going on in my own life. Um, not that I would make any excuses, but I just remember not registering as anything serious in my head that I needed to, to say anything at all or reach out or, or anything of the sort. And, um, and I've definitely spoken, spoken to him over the years on and off, but, um, and I, and the other thing is, uh, <laughs> It, it's funny these days with with social media and whatnot. I think as soon as somebody's not on social media or not on it much, I think for well, at least for me, and it's a pretty pathetic thing to say, um, people tend to drop off the face of the earth. And it's it's a wonder how any of us communicated before uh, these stupid uh, these stupid platforms uh, came came into play. So it wasn't until recently, and I saw. I saw Sinclair down here in Sydney um, at a at a gig. He was in town visiting his sister, I believe, and we had a very very quick chat. And I can't even remember what uh, what we spoke about, but I just I, I have this vague feeling that uh, that he he briefly mentioned something about not feeling well a while back. But whether the conversation got distracted or or whether I just wasn't paying attention enough and just a shit person, I've got no idea. But nothing again really registered or or made, you know, sounded in any alarm bells whatsoever. And it wasn't until uh, a couple of weeks ago that uh, there was a post that showed up on, on Facebook and it was uh, Sinclair's uh, sister that had posted a series of pictures and a message about what had happened to him back in December 2013. And he was currently doing a charity ride and was in relation to what had happened to him. So Sinclair will go through all this in, in the episode and, and I think he it's like any of my guests. I, I If I attempt to try and explain uh, the story or whatnot, I, I, I never do it justice. But uh, Sinclair had, went through a lung transplant, a double lung transplant and uh, went through an absolute horrible ordeal where, where he almost died and at one point 
wanted to die himself. Um, and just an absolutely incredible story of, um, of somebody that had a very slim chance of survival, but got through it and, and now is doing extremely well. And he's gone through this thing now of uh, raising money for charity, uh, to, to help fund, uh, further research and, and awareness and whatnot around the topic and, you know, doing his thing to give back to, to, to what's, you know, for the, for the people and, and what's there to trying to give back to everything that was given to him to, to keep him alive. And, uh, I'll have all the links and things that we speak about in, in the notes on andysocial.net. So you can go over there and have a look. Um, I think by the time this episode goes up, there might only be a little bit of time remaining, uh, for the current fundraiser that, uh, that he's involved with. So I'll, I'll have the link there. So if it is still running, uh, definitely uh, take consideration to donate but uh, but Sinclair mentions in the uh, in the episode itself um, of other other things that he thinks people people should think about and do to help help the overall situation and uh, I'll leave him to explain it but I'll also put some links to uh, some of seditions music as well I'll have to ask uh, ask him where some uh, some links are but I'll, I'll have them linked in there because there's some pretty cool stuff and and uh, for various reasons, that band had a lot of bad luck, and um, uh, you know, from, from personally within the band, and a lot of tragedy and and whatnot, which you know is not the not the time and the place to to discuss any of that. But um, I think just that the band could have could have done some really great things, and unfortunately, a lot of a lot of circumstances outside of their control just uh, stopped it from happening. And it's funny, I didn't even we didn't even touch on it, so I might even talk to talk to him later on down the track about that and get his thoughts on it all but I'll put some links in there because I think I think a lot of you will probably enjoy enjoy the music and uh, I'm sure Sinclair's probably got uh, got some CDs that um, that he's got there as well so I'll find out whether uh, whether he's got any available anyway enough rambling um, I really hope you enjoy this one it, it's a little bit lengthy it's not as bad as uh, as some of the ones in the past but uh, but you know get comfortable. It's a fantastic story and I ask a lot of silly questions along the way, but um, there was just a lot of things from an experience point of view that I wanted to try and wrap my head around and, and um, you know, there's no, there's no better opportunity than, than this to ask somebody who's, who's gone through this firsthand to, to get his thoughts. So I, I really, really got something out of this and I, I, I dare say that a, a lot of you will find it, find it quite interesting. So anyway... I hope you enjoy this one and uh, I'll talk soon at the end of it. I saw you not too long ago here in Sydney and I vaguely remember in hindsight that you mentioned like that you weren't well or you hadn't been well, but I don't think, I can't remember, I was sort of in a whirlwind at the time, but I just, I can't remember you going into detail at the moment because I, I just, in hindsight, I thought surely I would have remembered all of that. But then I do remember going back even further and probably around the time somebody had mentioned that you weren't well, but no one went into detail of what, what had happened. So I just sort of thought, oh, you've probably just been, you know, a little bit under the weather and, and uh, you know, but nothing more of it. And it wasn't until probably a few weeks ago that uh, you shared a post from your sister um, that, yeah, that, right. that you said sort of sparked the whole, the whole surge with, this, uh, with the charity ride and the donations that came in and whatnot. And then I read that and just went, oh, shit, <laughs> I didn't realise how how horrible it was and how bad it was for you. Yeah, yeah, and the photos, I think. Yeah. When, when, see, um, hearing it's one thing, but when you see photos of 
you know, someone in a coma and they've got the, the blood getting sucked out of their body and pumped back in again, people go, holy shit, like, um, uh, yeah, that's... Uh, it adds another element to it, doesn't it? I mean, you, you, as soon as you visualise something, then you, I think it just adds that that added reality to the to the whole situation that you know it's not just something as you said it's not just something you've read but um yeah. but it's in your face now i think too the other there was a photo of me um in the hospital bed i, don't, I know i was awake you know because my eyes are open but you can just see how many um you know cannulas catheters and tubes like i had a trachea as well um like every vein <laughs> almost had a cannula in it. But then I had, I think I had a central line in my neck. So that goes into a artery or vein in the neck um, down your heart. And then I had some dialysis catheters going in. I think it goes in the subclavian artery. And then you got the pick line that goes into your arm and that goes to your heart as well. And then there's the stuff you don't see, like down on my wrist. I think I had IVs in my wrist. It's just so there's like, Heaps of access for them if they need to inject, need to infuse anything. But I also had um, a uh, cannula in my artery. I had, I think I had, it basically swapped between each wrist. So I constantly had a catheter in an artery so that they could um, take um, arterial blood out and do a blood gas test on it just to see you know, what your blood's like. And um, yeah, so... Um, but anyway, yeah, we'll go to the start. Well, I've suffered from cystic fibrosis since since I was a kid. I was diagnosed at seven. It sort of, um, I didn't really have much of a problem with it when I was a kid. And even, you know, into my 20s, it wasn't that much of an issue. Like, I managed it and, and I didn't really tell people or like if someone asked a question, then, you know, I'd answer it. But unless they asked, I wouldn't say anything because it sort of, you know, it's a bit weird to just, you know, I don't want to be one of those people that sort of always, you know, telling people, you know. Oh, by the way, oh, by the way, yeah, I, this is all the things that are wrong. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, like uh, it was around probably 2010, my lungs really started to get worse and um, I was having to do a lot of treatments with nebulizers during the day to keep them going. And um, another problem I was getting was I was coughing up blood now and again. It was sort of this, you know, this sort of cloud over my head all the time, you know, when's it going to happen next? So I sort of, you know, just um, tried to avoid situations where that might happen. So I think I sort of, I don't know, I wasn't going out as much to around that time, but I knew that because I kept saying to my specialist that, you know, I, I really think I need a lung transplant. And he was saying that my lung function was too too good and that they wouldn't want to do it. But they did send me over to the Prince Charles anyway, which is the hospital that performs transplants in Queensland, so heart and lungs. But I think the Princess Alexandra does the livers and kidneys. Yeah, so... Um, I had an interview over there and they said, yeah, your lungs are too good. They sent me back and um, I was sort of in training for a lung transplant because you need to try and put on as much muscle as you can because you're bedridden for a while and mm. the old saying, if you, don't, if you don't use it, you lose it. So yeah. um, you sort of have to put on as much muscle as you can um, so that once you've had your operation, like you're going to 
lose some muscle and you've got to you know get out of bed and walk you've got to get active as soon as you can so i was sort of in training for that and i was going up to the gym and um working out and um I was actually working out at home and something popped in my lung and I passed out and I I knew I was coughing up blood as I was losing consciousness because I could feel, I couldn't see it. it. It was weird. When I started to lose consciousness, I, it's sort of like you lose your vision, but I could still hear and I could sort of feel what was happening. And I knew that I was drowning in my own blood and I thought, fuck this is it, like, this is how, you know, I'm going to die. And you sort of just, just accept it. And um, and then I, I lost consciousness. I woke up, got up, I sat up, pulled my mobile phone off the table and called my mum. She came over. Um, they called an ambulance, went to the Marta Hospital. They did a procedure called an embolization where they thread a uh, catheter um, up a uh, large vein they, they thread a catheter up into your lungs and, yeah. and uh, okay, it's got to be an artery and, um, and they uh, inject um, little plastic spheres into your arteries and the lungs to block them off so that, you know, fingers crossed, they'll, they'll nail the one that's causing the bleeding. They did that to me um, and, and I've had these procedures before, but... Um, I didn't recover from this one. So that was my last memory. So my mum told me after that operation, I went back to the ward and they're trying to get me up and walking, but my feet were going blue and my lips were going blue. And I've got no memory of this because I think the, uh, the oxygen in my blood was so low that my brain was barely ticking over. Like I was responding to commands, but, you know, nothing. I've got no memory of it. But what I do remember is not being able to breathe and... Um, and sort of the memory of this seems like a dream because you're half hallucinating because your your brain's starving for oxygen. And um, I just remember just feeling like you're breathing through a really thin straw, like every breath is you're having to force it in. And after, I think, a day and night of this, I just felt totally worn out. And the other thing too is your heart. My heart was beating maybe 180 or just constantly because your heart's trying to um, take up the slack of what the lungs are doing. And um, I think my sister posted this, but she said that, um, and I remember saying this, I said, just let me die or, or just kill me because, like, leaving me hanging on like this, it, it's it's like torture, like someone's strangling you. That's what it feels like. So it's like, you know, if I'm going to die, just get it over with. So from there they put me into a, induced coma and uh, this was at the Mata hospital and, and my specialist told my parents um you know this is this is a situation in the meantime my specialist called up his old friend uh who's a uh, transplant he's on the transplant team at the prince charles hospital um so he came over i think it was during the night actually so it just shows you how dedicated these doctors are to saving lives and he just said, yeah, we'll take him. So they took me from the Marta over to the Prince Charles uh, in an ambulance. From there, they put me on a type of life support called ECMO, which is, I can't remember what it stands for, but basically uh, they put two large um, catheters uh, or tubes up each femoral artery. So that's the large artery that goes uh, into each of your legs. And um, they thread them up. So one's arterial, one's venous, and they suck blood out of the 
Okay, I don't know which one they sucked the blood out of, but anyway, they, they sucked the blood out, oxygenate. I don't know if that's how you say it. They put oxygen into the blood. The main thing is putting oxygen into the blood. And if you saw that photo, you can see the blood going back into the brighter red color. That's the return. Yeah. yeah, so that then basically takes over from the lungs. And so they were keeping me alive on that sort of life support. And uh, in the meantime, um, because, you know, I was such an emergency case, they knew they had, because I had been doing the exercise, I knew I had a window of opportunity that they could keep me in the coma for a certain amount of time. The muscle, I had enough muscle there to sort of sustain me, but it was definitely an emergency. So they put, they called up all the hospitals uh, in Australia and New Zealand because it's quicker to get organs from New Zealand than it is from Western Australia, shorter distance. And Queensland's the only one that offers this service because uh, the Premier of Queensland has has their own jet. It's oh. the Premier's jet. So it was actually Joe Bjorki-Peterson that brought that jet in. And I think part of the reason to justify the cost of it, he said, you know, we'll be able to uh, transport donor organs into Queensland. So the public, you know, wouldn't be too critical of him spending this money on a, on a private jet. <laughs> yeah, on a private jet, yeah. Yeah, so... And and that's something they continue to this day. And I actually got to meet the pilots. Um, and uh, I think one of them was pretty sure he was the pilot that flew my lungs in. And, um, and he said it's the most rewarding part of their job doing this thing. And um, and they're ready to go, you know, day or night. And even if they've got a senior minister that needs to, I think at the time was Jeff Senior used to catch it because they used to fly him out west to go home. Yeah. And they could actually tell the politicians that, no, we can't do it. We've got to go pick up the Morgan, so you have to stay in Brisbane or whatever. So they put the call out. Um, so for two weeks, I was the most critical patient in Australia. And every day, the Prince Charles would call the hospital just to remind him that he's still alive. So if anything comes up, um, tend him. And I don't know if you can remember, but it was in the news. There was a girl that got killed jet skiing or something like that in New South Wales on a lake, I think. Um, they offered me her lungs, but they were too small for me. Right. And I think I got another offer, but I can't remember what the problem was with those ones. So every time an offer would come in, that actually wake me up. I don't really have a memory of it because um, when you're in a coma, um, you're basically hallucinating all the time. So when you're woken up, reality sort of blends into your hallucinations mm. and it, it's just crazy. So I've, I've probably got, if I had to think about it, I could remember when they've woken me up. It all be mixed in with just all kinds of craziness. And actually, this is probably a good point to bring up now. Um, when um, I first got to the, the intensive care unit at the Prince Charles, the director of ICU um, came in to see me and my girlfriend was there at the time. She was wearing an Iron Maiden t-shirt. And, um, and he started asking questions about, you know, Iron Maiden. And did I listen to Iron Maiden? She said, yeah, he does. And he he likes Iron Maiden. Like, he's, he's actually a metalhead. And um, I think his favourite band, Scorpions. <laughs> and um, and he, sa- he said that helped him sort of form a connection with me because he didn't know who I was but knowing that he you know he, he sort of had an idea of what my personality would be like and so he said knowing that 
I think he became a bit of an advocate for me getting transplanted because there were other doctors there that didn't want to do it. They thought it was too risky. But my specialist back at the Mater was really pushing for it and some other doctors were too. So it was a bit of 50-50. But anyway, um, I got an offer and um, I did the blood test and um, it came back that they weren't a match. But um, that doctor that I was telling you about, that my specialist went through medical school with, he suspected that the test had been in, done incorrectly. So he, he redid it himself and um, he said they're a match. So, but they'd actually woken me up, told me, you know, there's an office that you could be going into surgery. And then, and then they say, no, it's not a match. So they then put you back, <laughs> back into the coma. And, um, and then they woke me back up and said, no, it's actually going to go ahead now. And, and I remember this because I can remember the, the woman that told me just seemed really upset about it. Mm. And, um, but, um, I, I don't have memory going into the theatre, but, Anyway, went in and um, normally the operation goes for about uh, four hours and mine went for nine. Shit. And um, yeah, they had to swap out the surgeon, the surgeons halfway through. And the director of ICU said he was in the um, he was in the theatre when the surgery was going when it was happening. And he said like that I was this is his way of talking. He says you were trying to die every chance you got or something. So. <laughs> Yeah, because um, basically my heart had been struggling for so long that it just stopped. The muscle was, the heart muscle was worn out. So they got the lungs in, the lungs were fine, but now it was my heart had stopped. So they had to put the tubes that had previously been in my femoral artery that were keeping the blood full of oxygen and pumping it back in. They had to pull those out and put them directly into my heart. So after the surgery... Um, they open up your sternum to get the lungs in and your heart's exposed. And they left my chest open for about five days. And there's actually a photo of that too, and they stitch a bit of synthetic skin over, but you can see the tubes. Yeah, and, and Nicole said, Nicole's my girlfriend, she said, yeah, if you see my heart um, sort of beating underneath this synthetic skin. And, um, yeah, so I was like that for five days, and they um, stitched me back up. I, I can't remember how soon they woke me up, but I know that they. the idea is, well, the plan is to get you moving as soon as you can. Because I'd been in a coma, I think, for about a month by this time, um, I couldn't move at all. Like, I couldn't even lift, you know, my fingers off the bed. Wow. So, yeah, they'd sort of put you on. Uh, a program where the physio would come around and she'd say, okay, we'll try and move you, try and lift your arm. And you try and do it, nothing would happen. So she'd pick it up and just lift enough weight off that you can you sort of get the movement going. Because mm. when you're in the, a coma, not, not only your muscles deteriorate, but the nerves do as well. So the signals can't get through uh, as well as they would normally. And I remember her, when this first started, um, she's, I think um, I had it in my head that this would only take a couple of weeks. And she goes, no, it's going to take months. And I was like, oh, man, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, yeah, and it's just every day it was just a battle. Like, all this random stuff would happen. Like, um, oh, that's right, my heart went crazy again and it started beating. Like, my heart rate just kept rising and rising. And so I had to shock it to bring it back down to so, got a defibrillator and dad said that my dad was in the 
war at this time. They they give you a bit of sedation, but you're awake when it happens. And yeah, um, yeah like I've got no memory of it because you get amnesia from it. But he said that I had a <laughs> a shock look on my face after they shot my heart. <laughs> my eyes were wide open. So it's <laughs> a shame I can't remember that because it would have been interesting to know what that's like. Yeah, far um, out. Yeah, and that brought my heart back down. And um, and the goal is to get you standing. So they put you on uh, sort of this tilt bed, like you they drag you onto it horizontal and they tilt it up vertical and you get to feel what the the weight um, on your feet is like. And it's just sort of like that, like that, that'll be one day to the next day. It'll be actually sort of bending your knees a bit and pushing back up. And it's just every day, it's a small little improvement over what you did the previous day. So, so I would have started doing that probably late December, I think, in 2013. So I was transplanted on the 5th of December. Actually, it would have been the middle of December. And, um, and then I ended up getting out of hospital in the start of February, I think, the next right. year. So, yeah, so I think I was in hospital for about four months. Yeah, hard hard work. But even like when you left at the end of February, like roughly around then, you wouldn't have been anywhere near 100% by that stage. It's just you, you're, you're okay enough to at least go home, but I'm sure like you weren't, you still had a long way to go after that. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I was uh, still, I still needed assistance um, getting dressed because if I fell over, I wouldn't be able to get up. I could only walk for short periods of time and, and that was part of my continued rehabilitation was I'd just walk laps mm. around my parents' house. The other thing too is the medication was I had to go back into hospital because I was getting stomach pain from the medication. But, but over time, once you're over a certain point um, and you're able to exercise uh, regularly, yeah, you imp- improve quite quickly. As long as your diet good too you got to get the food in and uh, exercise and um and the main thing is your legs that's why I, I took up cycling um because it focuses the exercise onto your legs and uh the immune suppressants you're on are toxic to your muscles uh, like um, one of them is a steroid prednisone but it's a catabolic steroid it's not an anabolic steroid so it makes you weaker so if part of your treatment is actually the push the legs quite hard so that you're able to maintain your mobility and strength and, and that sort of thing. You've obviously explained it in a lot more detail than what uh, your sister put up, but it's just, it's, well, I'm lost for words, but I just, I kind of, the way that I look at it is that what you've gone through, very little people, like very few people ever would go through anything like you have. And the things that you've sort of felt or experienced along the way, you know, no one could even start to comprehend what you go through because I'm, I'm thinking straight away like when you said earlier on the piece about you know leading up to them putting you in the coma and your body just like just being absolutely exhausted and in so much pain and yeah you know, I think you said just feels like you're being strangled and getting to the point where mentally you just you just you're making that decision already to say look you know that's it you need you need to if if I'm going, you need to end it now and, and just get it over and done with. And for me, I can't even fathom getting to a point mentally like that where you'd even that that thought would cross your mind. But um, that in itself just that's I would <laughs> the only thing I can think is next yeah. level next level sort of stuff. It's just it's incredible. Yeah, when I've heard of people um, that have had 
uh, influenza that have been really sick in hospital and and they've said in interviews that if they had a died they wouldn't have cared they just feel that that sick um for me it was just it was stressing me out not being able to breathe it, it's horrible um you know not being and until you've been i don't know i, I think you have to be strangled or asphyxiated to know what it, it feels like but um that when you can't draw breath, you naturally panic. Or if you've ever come close to drowning, I don't know if you've ever been swimming at the beach and you just, you've just been hammered by waves over and over and you really start struggling uh, to get to the surface to get breath of air, you do start to panic. And it's mm. just you know, it's the way humans have adapted through evolution to stay alive, that panic and adrenaline to um, do what it takes to you know, get, get your breathing. But, but when you can't, and, it, and it's just going on for, in, in my case, a, a day and a night, I think, where every single breath you, you, you've, you're consciously forcing it in, and you can't, and you haven't slept for that long. It's like, yeah, I'm over this torture. <laughs> yeah, and I, I assume that you probably wouldn't even get to a point mentally where you're even thinking beyond that physical experience that you've got. Like, I mean, I think what I'm trying to say is. Yeah, you're not thinking of the ramifications of you not being there anymore. You're just thinking and whatever the physical experience that, that's happening to me at that point in time. I assume anyway, like it's not, you haven't got enough clarity of mind to go, you know, I don't want to die or, you know, I yeah. want to get through this or anything like that. It's just make make whatever's physically happening to me stop. Yeah, I wasn't even thinking of transplant because I'd, I'd already brought it up and nothing had happened. So I sort of just thought that it wasn't going to happen. But yeah, when your oxygen is that low, your, your brain isn't really um, thinking thinking straight. Yeah. And not not that, you know, wanting to die wasn't thinking straight, but, but you're not thinking of all the variables and all the possibilities and stuff like that. And that's why they put you in a coma. They know that, you know, with, with modern medicine, they can keep you alive just so that, you don't have to go through all that. But it's easier just to put you in a cone or put you out. Yeah, and I, and I think maybe if you were kept alive for that, maybe maybe you never know. You you would just give up and die mm. because you're so stressed out from what's going on. Oh, I'm sure. Um, um, I'm sure your body would just start to to shut down if your if your mind gets exhausted to such a degree that uh, you know because obviously everything's sort of functioning based on signals and. I mean, obviously, it's, they've all got to be healthy components, but they've got to they've got to run on commands coming from from up the top. So if if that that area of the body's stressed out and exhausted, then I assume that it's probably going to have a compound effect moving down the body. The other thing too, like when you were saying, just the experience of going through this that other people, well, just you know, people in the general public don't get to experience. Is I, I always knew, you know, a, a transplant would most likely be a part of my life and, um, you know, further down the track. But this is, you know, before my transplant. Um, but, you, but I never, like, once you're being kept alive by someone else's organs, um, you, you have this strange connection of someone that you've never met. Mm. And, um, and I really wasn't, I'd never really thought about it until it happened and um and i remember when after my transplant actually i was crying because it meant that somebody like i'm starting to feel like i could cry now but someone died and, and i'm alive and yeah. and it's hard to sort of rationalize that and, and you feel guilt like i feel guilty 
about it, but you know, but Mum just explained, well, that, well, that person died anyway. It, it's better that you know people were kept alive than them going to waste those organs going to waste. Absolutely. And uh, and since then, um, I've been corresponding with my donor's mother, and so I think it's also therapeutic for the family to receive letters from people that, that they don't know, but a sort of you know, sharing a part of, of their loved one. And, um, you know, and not that they're still alive, but a part of them is in someone else. And um, and so she told me a bit about her son and um, and that he was he was active. He was a rugby union player and um, I think he was going to represent Australian lawn bowls. It was a handwritten letter. I'm pretty sure it was lawn bowls. I don't even know if that's a Commonwealth Games event. Yeah, he, he was obviously active. And, um, and so I sort of, when I write to her, I tell her what sort of, uh, you know, how I've been putting <laughs> these lungs to use. So with my writing and um, stuff like that. So stuff he was interested in. You know, maybe carried across to me, if that makes sense. Yeah, from an active point of view, and yeah, pu- mm. pushing pushing that uh, that updated component in your body now, the 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 upgrade that you've you've received. But um, yeah. I was gonna I was gonna ask you about the donor side of things because I, you know, I mean, the, my experience for the most part's just been from whatever you you see in a documentary or a movie or something like that. But uh, there was whether there was any truth to it or not. I just remember somewhere in the past someone saying that donors weren't, well, the, the person who received the, the organ wasn't able to make contact with whoever the family was of, of the person who had died and donated their organs. But obviously you've, you've been able to, to have access to, to the family. Is there some sort of program that they have in place for, for the families of, of, uh, of people that have, have died and passed on their organs and, and, to, and to wherever those, uh, the destination of where those organs turn up? Is there anything that's set up or is that you just get contact details from the hospital and that's, that's it? Yeah, it's, it's a federal government program called Donate Life. And yeah, there are policies, it, like everything's anonymous. Um, like I'm not allowed to know who they are. They're not allowed to know who I am. They're not allowed not allowed to know which hospital I was operated at. And I actually just wrote a letter to her recently and it got rejected because I mentioned this charity ride I did recently and because yeah. I was the number one fundraiser. Um, it easy to work out. Yeah, they Googled. Um, yeah, they just did a couple of searches and I was coming out on top in some news stories because there was so much publicity about me in particular. So they rejected the card because of that. So I've got to rewrite it and send it back to them. So they've all, so they've got to screen the correspondence going each way before it reaches the other the other person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like uh, it's almost like. I mean, not that it's the best analogy, but it's like you know, screening letters from people sending stuff in and out of prison or something like that, just to make sure nothing, nothing suspicious is being uh, being conveyed. Do you know the Do you know the reason as to why they they try and keep it uh, anon- anonymous between between both parties? It'll be an ethical. There'll be ethical guidelines when it comes to organ donation, so that there's no favoritism or. Maybe so they can limit. I don't know what scenarios that they're trying to avoid, but yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's got to be because if one party didn't want to know um, mm. who, you know, what had happened, they just sort of wanted to grieve in their own way. 
or even if the, the recipient sort of wanted, didn't feel comfortable corresponding with the donor, uh, maybe it's a way of protecting protecting the, the people involved. Having having that third party there just to 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 be that shield in case there is uh, you know that reluctance to to make contact instead of you having to like if it was you that didn't want to have to go through that awkwardness of of rejecting correspondence from from the donor's family, you know, mm. there's somebody else there in place that can that can mitigate that and and uh, and sort of take the brunt of that and go through that process instead of putting all that pressure on on you, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah fair yeah. enough. Fair enough. It's good to know that in a way, like regardless of not being able to give the finer details and and sort of identify who who you both are and whatnot, that you're still able to pass it, pass messages backwards and forwards, and at least they've got some peace of mind knowing that it's gone somewhere that's having having a positive impact and, and, and you're able to sort of fulfil a bit of peace of mind on your side to let that, let that family know as well. So there's still obviously great, huge benefit of, of, um, of that program in place. Oh, yeah, for sure. And it's, it's also, you know, I'm, I'm constantly thinking how lucky I am that I'm an Australian resident born in Australia because, um, you know, if, if I was in the United States, I'd be a dead man. Can you like, give me an example of why? Like the, what's, the, what's the main... I mean, obviously, we've got like the healthcare system, and and obviously that 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 supports to a, to a degree. But what's the what's the main difference? Just the the waiting list in in the US, or just not having the um, no? It's it's the cost. It's, it's Medicare uh, over in America. I should also mention to the survival rates uh, in in America, the mean survival rate for lung transplant is two years. The hospital where I received my transplant, their mean is. 10 years, uh, and once you get to 10 years, then you are able to be re-transplanted if you need it. So I, I think because uh, because of Medicare, well, well, first of all, the cost is, is paid by Medicare. In America, and I see it now and again, people with CF will have to do fundraisers because they have to raise the money themselves and pay for it because, you know, private health insurance isn't going to cover someone with a chronic health condition. So they've got to pay for it themselves. And... Um, so there's that cost, which, you know, if you can't raise the money, you know, you're not going to get the operation and you'll die. But then I think, too, because of socialised healthcare, there's a program in place for constant review of, of the patient to make sure that they're okay. Mm. In America, you can have your transplant, but then you don't really get the follow-up and you don't get the follow-up care. So if something goes wrong, if you start going through rejection or you get a bad infection... And, and that can kill you. So that's it's, it's situations like that that bring their statistics down to only two years. Whereas in in Australia, you know, if if I was to get sick, I'll get hospital care, no, no questions asked. And because I've had a transplant, they'll keep close eye on me. And actually, can you remember when you were doing that dry July? And I, oh yeah, you know. And and you were raising money for the PA yeah, hospital. That would and, and I yeah, and I donated and I said, Yeah, I'm in the PA hospital at the moment. Well that <laughs> I was, probably just I probably just went, Oh yeah, you probably work in there or you just gone to visit someone <laughs> Not even not even putting two and two together at all. Um that was that would have been well no, that and that would have made sense because that would have been two thousand and fourteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Um 
Well, I was in there because I was getting a fundification done on my stomach to take away the risk of um, getting reflux from your stomach. So that operation is done because statistically you're less likely to get a type of complication down the track with your lungs. Um, Whereas in America, I doubt they would perform that operation and that would be another thing you'd have to pay for. Raise money for Um, Mm. Yeah, so so it's all those sort of things. You know, I'd, I'd hate to think how much money <laughs> has been spent on me, but I know it's a lot. So it, it's a constant thought in my head how lucky, you know, we are to have Medicare, you know, the safety net for, for all of us. I just When you mentioned about, you know, the scenario of somebody in the States having to go through this and then go through, you know, trying to raise money, you, you can't even fathom being in that situation, like if they're in the same situation you were where, you know, you're lying in that bed before they put you in the coma and they're like, oh, hang on, we need to go and start raising some money. Like it's not exactly that you've got you've got time on your side. You're not going to sit there, uh, you know, trying to draw breath while people try and scrape together money and find, you know, find a way to, to keep you going. And that's probably why a lot of people just don't, probably don't even get to that stage of, of having the money to do the operation. So, geez, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's incredible. You, yeah. I think every day you spend in ICU costs seven thousand dollars. So that gives you an idea. You'd have to be raising seven grand every day. Yeah. Um. Which you know, unless you're, I don't know, really famous, you just, it just won't happen. No. Because I've read other stories about there was some woman and her child got some weird illness, and they, they she was in ICU, and they couldn't. They didn't. They couldn't diagnose what was wrong with her, and and she was just aware of how much money it was costing every day, and uh, just saying like how lucky it was that you know they were able to keep her daughter alive till they figured out you know what was wrong with her. Mm. Because in states, you know, you never know. They might say not your insurance, you know, doesn't cover this, yeah. and um, and then people just die. Must be being. Incre- I mean, obviously, absolutely horrific for for the person and the family to go through all that, but it must be it must be just, well, not just as bad, but almost as bad for the people that work in the hospitals that have to make those decisions and, you know, from a because, you know, from the top end, from a business point of view, they, they can't they can't keep these people in there. So they oh geez, I don't even know how from a conscious point of view that people would go through and in the States, I guess just, you know, you're looking at a larger volume of people, so you'd see a lot more of these scenarios popping up and they just yeah. it'd just be some difficult decisions to make on a daily basis in those in those uh those situations but yeah i never thought of it from that perspective but um yeah the, the people in the offices the management that makes these decisions they're not the ones on the front line that no. have to say well, no yeah we're not going to help you so go away and die yeah that, that that's the that's the reality mm. of of those decisions but then you're going to get that nurse or that doctor who's down on the front line and they're the ones that have got to pass that information on and, and deal with, you know, whatever, whatever reaction is going to come, come out of that as well. So the person who's sort of sitting up in the office won't, uh, won't be exposed to that. They're the ones that are making that, that decision. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's uh, it's intense. So, I mean, just going back to what you said, then obviously extremely <laughs> lucky to, to to be a citizen and be in Australia and have the have that healthcare system there, just to, I mean, it's it's saved your life. Yep, sure, Jed. So, um, when it 
comes to <laughs> when it comes to the election and you've got your prime minister saying wants to privatise Medicare, uh-huh. um, to just think about that and think, okay, what if I get sick yeah. down the track? Yeah, I'll be thinking about you for the rest of my life now (laughs) whenever it comes into conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's something we're all already paying for. There's no reason to privatise it. Absolutely, yeah. We're all paying for it with our taxes. It's exactly right. Oh, it's like, you know, it's whether this is the best comparison but it's like we we pay we pay taxes for things like you know the dole you know and supporting people that are unemployed but you know we don't we don't pay it with the with the vision that we will at some stage in our life be unemployed and need that support but we pay it anyway so there's enough money in the kitty for those who do go through that and then in the event that we might be in that situation as well. So you're not paying it just with the expectation that, you know, there's 26 million people in, in the country and they're all paying, you know, a chunk of money that goes to that particular, uh, you know, situation yeah. or scenario. It's, you know, it's, it's like insurance, you know, you're paying insurance. You might never need to use it, but you pay it anyway for peace of mind. And, but yeah, it's, it's and that, yeah, and that pool of money's there so that when, shit does go wrong, you might have only paid a small amount of money over a period of time, but the, the pool of money is there for you to access and it's it's because everyone's chipped in to, to help each other out. So yeah, it's um yeah. that's a it's a it's a good system and hopefully it stays there for for one very at least one very good example that uh, <laughs> that you've unfortunately had to go through to 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 pass on that message as well. Um one other question I was gonna ask and and I'll, I'll touch on sort of all the charity stuff as well because I'm going to put a bunch of links for people to go and check it out. And the other thing I was going to mention about all these experiences that you've had that are sort of one-off one-off things or things that most people will never experience, the whole coma thing, and you, you touched on it before about having sort of coming in and out of, well, sort of a consciousness you know, sort of thing and waking up but having a lot of sort of hallucinations and whatnot. What do you... You mentioned that you're basically in a coma for a month. Is is that correct overall? Yeah, I, I think it was about four weeks because I think there was like the uh, the two weeks before my transplant, or or maybe it was three weeks. I'm not sure, but let's just say it was about it was about four weeks, and um, a period of that was before the transplant, and mm. a period of that was post transplant. I guess the the question that I've got. And it's probably a very hard thing to to even try and comprehend to answer. But I guess, well, very blunt way, what the hell is it like being in a coma? Well, for me, it wasn't fun. Um, You've probably heard about this book called, I think it was called Proof of Heaven. Mm. There was some doctor or scientist that was in a coma. He got a bacterial infection. He was in an induced coma for a while and... Um, the hallucinations he had, he considered proof that there was an afterlife, which is which is crazy coming from someone that should be scientifically minded. Mm. Um, but but I think the best way to describe it, it's like imagine if your dreams were reality, and uh, and I think because because you are in a coma, your brain's being kept active by the dreams that you're having. Mm. But because you've got no stimulation from being conscious, your memory s- perceives the the dreams and um, and stores them in your memory as if it really happened. So when I woke up, I was really confused about what 
what had happened because, um, you know, I was in my hallucinations taken all across the world and put in all sorts of situations. They all sort of came back to my health, like what was going on in the real world, like mm. particularly with the whole transplant thing and coming so close to death. Um, there, was, there was a constant thing where people were trying to kill me. So I had, uh, I had this idea that the nurses were trying to drain me of my blood to, I don't know, sell to the Red Cross or <laughs> something. So I would, I'd be lying in bed and, um, and nurses would be poking around and they're waiting for me to, in, in my head, they're waiting for me to go to sleep so they can sneak in and, you know, start <laughs> sucking, sucking the blood out of me. So I didn't want to go to sleep and I'm like looking at all of them scowling because I couldn't talk at this point. Yeah. And I know that I was, I must have had my eyes open at that point because the, the nurses I saw in those dreams and later once I was awake, I, I remember them in real life. Right. Yeah, I, I have a, a really funny hallucination. Um, actually, I'll, I'll sort of tell you the whole thing so it explains how I ended up in America, but yeah. because I'd requested that, you know, these doctors to just end my life, um, my dad had took it upon himself to fulfill that request, so he flew me over to California and paid some... No, I think it was actually the California travel down to Mexico so they could pay some Mexicans to just shoot me in the head. And, um, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Um, but, 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 you know, I, I can remember this like it actually happened. Wow. Like that, that's, that's how your brain stored it. And, yeah. and, and people do, they suffer post-traumatic stress disorder after mm. being in comas because they can't tell the difference, what was real, what was reality. And it's stressful because it's like it really happened to. And, and even now, still, when, when I'm driving around, sometimes I'll see certain things that jog my memory and I'll get this like fear and an adrenaline rush and you know this intense fear because uh you know something bad's gonna happen. But but anyway. So I'm in um Mexico, um so they shot me in the head but the bullet bounced off my skull and I ended up in a hospital in America and um and they fixed me up. But then this one night basically like once all the visitors went all the nurses dimmed the lights down, and so a nurse would walk past, and then she'd come back, and she's wearing a dominatrix outfit, and she's looking <laughs> at me, and I'm like, okay. And then, um, and then another nurse comes up, and she sets his cap video camera up on a tripod, pointing <laughs> at my bed, and I'm like, what the fuck is she putting that there for? And then, and all of a sudden, all the nurses are wearing bondage gear and strap-ons. And someone brings <laughs> up this massive dildo on a trolley. <laughs> and, yeah. And I'm like, oh, man, I, I know what's <laughs> going down here. And, and then my dreams, I was saying, don't you dare fucking do this. <laughs> I was going, if you do this, I'm, I'm going to get you all. And, um, and then yeah, they rolled me onto my front and um, put the dildo to work. And they were filming it. And in my head, they were streaming this on the internet. I was like... <laughs> And the whole time I'm going, you know, fuck you. <laughs> and, um, and, and then I, I don't know how, but I ended up calling the cops and I, and it was a big thing on the news and they all got arrested and I, I uncovered this dirty fucking <laughs> hospital ward where they were raping their patients. And, and so that's the sort of stuff that was going on. And, and I, I remember it like, 
like it really happened. So that was probably the more crazy one <laughs> that I had. <laughs> wow. <It's> a- <laughs> All I'm thinking when you're telling me that is, shit, you had you had a month of this. Yeah. <laughs> this, this, yeah. These, so- uh, these ridiculous over-the-top and probably, I mean, I was going to, yeah, crazy adventures, but like it was just not that they were exciting and fun or anything like that. I mean, that were, that, no doubt it would have been absolutely mentally draining for you, but did it feel like that you were out for a month? Did, could you, did you have a concept of time while you were, while you were out or it just sort of no, went really quickly no, I, or you just, you just don't know? Well, when I woke up, like I'd bite my nails, so they're usually really short and they'd grown really long. So that was like, wow, I've got long nails now. And, um, and then the other thing too is um, people were telling me stuff that had happened while like the, I think Nelson Mandela had died and Paul Walker from Fast and the Furious no. and like Nicole goes yeah Paul Walker died while you're while you're out and um and she said that he died in a car crash and I just thought oh, I'm hallucinating again because you know, fast and furious. So I sort of ignored that. And then once I was out of hospital, then I was like, what? That really happened? So <laughs> <laughs> um, so stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and another thing too is her dog. Well, um, it was her dog that we both, um, you know, sort of, you know, both of our dog, like he had died while I'd been in a coma. So that was upsetting to know that that had happened. Mm. And yeah. Just changes like that, like, this dog I'll never see again now, and um, yeah. It's a, it, I'm, I'm sure there's other stuff, but it's just, but those are the, the main things that sort of come to mind. So, but did did it feel like? I mean, obviously not having the concept of time, but sort of, and it's obviously pretty difficult to try and comprehend. But did it feel like that period of time went went quickly, or you just you just got no you've got no way of even sort of oh, measuring it at, yeah. at all? Yeah. Um, to tell the truth, it probably seems like it was a month's worth, but but what happened in my memories was probably like a year's worth of actual events. Yeah, right. Because, you know, I spent time in England. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I think this had to do with the Iron Maiden thing because part of my, my the, the director of ICU was playing Seventh Son of a Seventh Son just on repeat because that's my favourite album. And... Um, just as a stimulation thing for my brain, and that was getting in there because I had a hallucination. I was in a in a hospital in um, England, and um, and I'd requested that Iron Maiden be played on a radio station. And anyway, everyone in England was playing this one radio station, so there was an ambient Iron Maiden in the background of the world. If, if, yeah, right. That, yeah, you could be walking down the street, and all you'd hear is um, Iron Maiden playing. And um, and, I, and I remember thinking, man, that's awesome! Like <laughs> they listened to my request. Like not only played on the radio station, but somehow everyone in the country's playing it. I guess. It, I guess in that sense, it probably it probably was quite exhausting because it it did feel like you were you were away. You were, you were gone for for such a a lengthy period of time, like longer than, than what reality actually was. So Yeah, I remember asking my mum, because I had a dream that I was in a movie, like I was, um, I, I don't know how, but I got into a movie and um, I can't remember who, it was like a 
superhero movie, like Batman or something like that. I was saying, was I in this movie? And she was like, no, and just looking at me like I'm crazy. But I, I thought it really happened. I was just like, that oh. vivid. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> that, That's that incredible. Cool. <laughs> uh, you've been busy while you've been lying in bed. <laughs> just yeah. everyone's, everyone's sorting out things for you, getting your movies. Yep, sounds good. I guess now, and you're a little little while past everything that's happened do you i mean you mentioned sort of when you when you're out and about you might see something that triggers triggers a thought from from that time but do you find that a lot of that stuff sort of comes back in waves when you sleep like if you i don't know if you regularly dream i know some people well i think everybody dreams but some people just don't consciously remember it but do you pick up any of that sort of stuff or does anything linger um no yeah. Um, yeah, I, yeah, not in my dreams. Um, I know I did have trouble waking up. I actually pissed the bed one night because I couldn't wake up wow. to go to the toilet. But, but that sort of settled down. Yeah, like an example of sort of what happens is is um, when I in the time in my hallucinations when I spent time in America. Um, I, well, I had this obsession with eating and drinking food because. Um, the whole time you're in a coma, they're keeping you alive with um, IV nutrients, but no food's going into your mouth or, or stomach. So you, I think you end up having this craving to eat or drink and taste stuff. So that was a constant theme to my hallucination of, of me being able to drink some flavoured milk. And um, so I'm in America um, and my sister owned a cafe no, it's sort of like a roadside diner, and um, and it and it sort of had that American that sort of nineteen fifties style writing on it. So if if I see that um, or any sort of American diner sort of situation, that mm-hmm. will that will trigger it, yeah, and right. um, and yeah, and I'll just get this um, shit. Um, oh, okay, I forgot to tell you what happened in that diner was then. A gang of Mexicans rocked up because, you know, they didn't finish the, the job of fucking shooting them in the head. So they came <laughs> back to, you know, finish a job. So they, they got Tommy guns and they're just shooting the whole place up. My sister just gets wasted and the whole place is torn apart. And I get away, of course. And so there's like constant, I don't know, like um, threat of death in my hallucinations of people trying to kill me. So if you can imagine someone was trying to kill you, the, the fear you'd felt and, the, the, sorry, the fear you would feel, mm. that's what I'd feel when, you know, if I see something that, that triggers that. Triggers, um, triggers one of those, one of those, yeah, well, it's, 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 I was going to say memories, but I guess, well, they are, they, they I mean, even, even though they, they, it wasn't reality, it was, it's still a, it's still a memory of some sort, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I can only try and compare it to when I just have really ridiculous, crazy dreams or when I, you know, I might have a a very brief case of where I think I might be lucid dreaming or something like that, and that's the only that's the only sort of bearing I've got as far as trying to comprehend what you what you've gone through. So it's um, but and for such find, a yep. Do you find that you remember your dreams when you wake up? Yeah, yeah. I, and not all of them, and it's funny yeah. because I can like I'll wake up and know that I've had at least four or five distinctive dreams and I'll be able to uh, recall probably three of them and then I get 
a sort of feel or a sense or even like a colour or some sort of shade of what those other dreams were, even though I've got no idea what they were specifically or, you know, where I was or what was going on or whether I was even there or not. Um, I get this sort of feeling about the other ones and it might just be like a particular scent or sense or something like that, that, that might trigger it off later on. But I, I just got no recollection whatsoever of what that, what they are apart from a feeling but um, it's yeah. but, and the other times you sort of wake up, and for that first probably thirty seconds of of coming, becoming awake again, um, you you can remember everything and you and you re- recalling everything. But within about thirty seconds, it's gone, and you, just, yeah. you, you yeah. it's just disappeared. And you and you might have that slight feeling of what what potentially it was, but you you're trying to grasp onto whatever memory of that dream was there and it's just it's just long gone so it's it's really it's fascinating i've i've got a book on lucid dreaming that i haven't read yet because i've i've been sort of uh interested in in that sort of stuff and and even just trying to get an understanding of of what all these dream states are like and and you know not that um, i'm terribly interested in a lot of woo woo kind of stuff but it's just interesting to see how the mind works and where we pull I guess where we pull the data from, you know, we, we watch things and read stuff and experience things. And then we sort of jumble them all together when we're, when we're passed out at night and we come up with these crazy, crazy uh, adventures and stories and whatnot. And, and why some people, you know, have my fiance, Jess, she went through a period for a long, long period of time where she just had the most violent and aggressive dreams that you could possibly have and yeah. and just that was all it was just a common theme no matter what and but then after a while they just they disappeared so but i think that had a lot to do with what was going on just in everyday life that was stressing her out and it sort of just translated into what happened when she went to sleep but it's just interesting how some people have particular themes or common themes that keep running through each time they sleep and other people are just all over the shop and yeah so yeah, yeah. what you were saying about jess reminds me of um the inspiration for the Nightmare on Elm Street movies because um, it was based off, um, I think, a Korean guy in real life who he just had terrible nightmares um, when he went to sleep. He was convinced someone was trying to kill him in his dreams. So he just started, you know, eating coffee beans and doing whatever he could to stay awake. He ended up yeah. dying, I think, because of some sleep deprivation. It's incredible. But, um, but that was Wes Craven's um, inspiration. For yeah, right. Yeah, I didn't know that. that movie. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, for some people, I could understand that. I mean, I think for... For Jess, it was it was a, a discomfort enough to to be stressful, but not absolutely, you know, uh, debilitating. Yeah, debil- that's the word, debilitating. That it was having such a dramatic impact on her mentally and physically and whatnot. So it wasn't a, a really extreme level, but it was enough that it was it was it was causing some stress in her life, and and I think she was just going through a stressful period in her life anyway. So I think just her body sort of getting through it and trying to trying to you know tackle it and manage it all was to to start spewing out all these crazy uh, crazy scenarios and situations in in a in a dreams but um mm. but after a while once that once all the sort of things in her everyday life had, had started to change and settle down then she didn't have have those uh, those dreams anymore but yeah it's it's quite fascinating that's why I'm 
just even when you mentioned like you're you're pretty much in a coma for for a month, I'm just thinking, how does that even what how do, what does that look like, and how does that even feel? Because you see in the movies, and, and it's like oh that you know the the person's in a coma, but they they they're still awake and they can hear everything and they know what's going on and and people can still talk to them even though they're not responding and it's sort of like they're trapped and uh, they they're totally conscious and then there's other other scenarios in you know it's all sort of stuff in the movies but so I've always just been fascinated and especially now uh, you know talking to you yeah. and you've got, you've got a first hand experience of of uh, of going through it yeah what happens in the real world does filter through into those hallucinations and um and when you're even going in and out of it because they would um they'd sort of back off on the medication to, to bring you out of it and wake you up a bit and um and uh and i can remember those periods because i you know i asked my girlfriend you know did this really happen and she goes yeah, yeah i can remember that but everything around that she goes no that didn't happen so there's these brief instances where you know my eyes were open and um, information got in, but then, um, then the, um, the dream sort of, uh, state envelops that. And, uh, you've sort of got a mix and you've got to do a bit of deciphering too. And you've got to talk to people and, you know, find out what really happened and what didn't happen. And it's safe to say most of the real crazy stuff didn't happen. <laughs> and, and, and that's why this book, this guy wrote such, I actually thought about writing, a book called Proof of, I don't know, Hallucinations or something, like a sort of a counter book to his one, give him a dose of reality. Yeah, why not? Yeah, just some, you know, objectives. Because I could, you know, list, I don't know how, I think he was only under for a a week or two maybe, but apparently he said like he was like a, a, I don't know, a droplet of water on a butterfly's wings flying through the universe or something like that. Yeah, right. A bit um, of a psychedelic adventure. Yeah, and he thinks that was him, I don't know, in heaven. Yeah. But, but no, you're just dreaming. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, I don't know what, I, I don't know this guy, but I, I wonder what his background and upbringing was. And, you know, he might not have been a religious person, but he might have been in, a, in an area where there was a, you know, a lot of religious people or religious schooling or something like that, where he might not have been terribly interested, but it had enough of an underlying, you know, impact mentally to him so that it's caught up with him when he's, when he's been in this state. And it's just been, you know, he hasn't been conscious of it. But um, it's resurfaced, and he, now he's pieced it all together and come up with this uh, with this theory. <laughs> now he's stuck with. But um, oh, hey, man, I think well, um, I, it's rationalization. That's the only way he can rationalize what he remembers. Whereas I, I find it quite easy to understand that it's just when you're given drugs that you know make you go unconscious. You know, you, you're gonna see some trippy shit. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think even if um, if you didn't go down that path and and uh, you know do a do a counter book to his, I think um, even just putting together like a, a a short a short collection of stories just from your month uh, in a, in another world might uh, might uh, pick up quite a bit of interest from other people. So I think it, people would get a laugh, especially <laughs> especially that one with the with the dominatrix and the dominatrix nurses. Uh, I think that's. <laughs> <laughs> itself will, will make it a bestseller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, I won't ever forget that. Yeah. That one. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Oh, well, I won't keep you too much longer. But do you want to just mention briefly about the whole writing thing? 
and we you spoke about it a bit before and getting into that and and it's obviously been a massive help to try and get your the lower part of your body and your legs sort of up to up to speed and and you know uh physically in a in a satisfactory condition but um obviously that's translated into into a charity a charity ride which you've done but you're still raising money for that at the moment yeah i think it they're keeping it you can still donate to the end of um uh, march okay so right. it's a month after the uh, event okay so it might i'll put the link up anyway so people can go and check that out but um i guess yeah. after that what's um even if you know donating's not their thing um uh, the other the other side of it is just the awareness and becoming an organ donor because in australia you know the, the donor rates are lower than other countries in the world and um in particular spain's a good example but you know just even signing on with uh, Donate Life and uh, or even talking to your parents and family because if you ever end up in a hospital brain dead, the thing, another thing that people don't realise is to be an organ donor, you've got, it's such a specific circumstance that happens. You've got to be brain dead in a hospital on life support. That's the only way you can be a donor. And I think that's only 1% of deaths in a year are in that situation. And then from that 1%, there's a certain percentage that do become a donor. So so that just shows you how few people, first of all, are in a position to be a donor and then actually become a donor. But families are more likely to be comfortable with that decision if it's already been discussed with the parents or, or they know that they have registered to become a donor because then that's fulfilling the, the wishes of, um, yeah. of that person. Mm. Um, but if they don't know, then I think the chances are that they will say no if uh, if it's brought up um, mm. by the hospital. What What do you think the? I mean, just going through your experience and whatnot. It, what do you think the main reason is why people don't don't do it? Don't like tick the box on their on their driver license, driver's license, or you know, sign up to anything. Do you think it's just purely awareness, or do you think there's a stigma attached to it at all? I don't really know. I mean, I told. My parents actually did. When when I was in the Mater Hospital and I thought I was going to die, I said goodbye to my parents and I said, I think we discussed. Mum said, "What do you want done with your body?" And I said, "Can you donate the science?" Because the way I say, when you're dead, you know, why not put put the the body to some use? Like if mm. some students can learn something from it, from my dead body, then then good. Something productive has come as you know this this physical shell rather than it being cremated or buried. But imagine that um, instead of your body being, you know, burnt up, it actually, from that, you can save up to, you know, I think it's between six and nine lives. Um, I, I don't know statistics, but it's definitely more than six because there's heart, lung, kidney, pancreas. Yeah. And then there's, there's tissue as well. There's a heart valve can be used. So you could really be spread out across quite a few people if... Uh if they're resourceful with, with your organs? Yeah. Well, the the donor, so my donors, I can't remember how many lives he saved, but I've, I've got a think it's five or six. And, and one of them, so you got two kidneys. I don't know what, there was a small boy whose life got saved. And so my donor, he had a son. So if you can imagine for his family, they know that, you know, they can sort of look at 
his son and say, okay, someone else's son is alive because of him. Mm. Yeah. You take whatever you can get and I think um, in such a a tragic situation for a family and everyone around a, a person who who dies, you know, you look for you look for whatever, ever sort of reassurance and peace of mind that you can get. And I think that's probably one of the best things that you could possibly have is that that person sort of, you know, whether whether you think about it in a more spiritual sense or whatnot. I mean, that person still lives on, or you know, definitely does physically um, in in other people, and and as a result of something tragic, other people have have survived um, yeah. due to it. Yeah. So. You know, it's it's. I guess it can be somewhat healing and therapeutic for for the family who's who's had to experience it. I mean, definitely for both sides, but um, but for that person who's or that that family that's had that sort of tragic incident to begin with, it's um. Actually, what you um, asked before is why people don't want to do it. I actually just remembered. Um, I did hear a story about someone that wanted to donate their organs, but they. It was someone I was talking to recently, but she said that she just didn't want her eyes to be touched. I think you can. Uh, I think the corneas can be harvested. Yeah, right. Um, okay. So, so there's some things people just aren't comfortable with. Like she didn't care about heart, lung, kidneys. But for some reason, she didn't want her eyes touched. Mm. And um, I don't understand that because um, that's not, you know, the way I think that she does. And um, and so I think with some people, maybe they just sort of see that their body is being, I don't know, sacred and that they don't want it being um, cut open and, and organs taken out. I think it's sort of like the um, the discussion that people have around whether they want to have their body buried or cremated and and some people go, oh, I, I'd hate to be hate to be in a box in the ground rotting away. And then the other person's like, oh, I'd hate to be in an oven, you know, getting cremated. And yeah, yeah. both completely off the off the track straight away because y- you're dead. So you, you're not going to know, and you know, and it's not going to matter what happens. You're more or less. I mean, whatever you choose is more or less for what the what the rest of the family experiences. But um, I think we I think we still attach ourselves to to what the afterlife's going to be and we, and especially for people that are religious as well, they, there's probably a lot of additional stress and pressure put on it because they feel that they're, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, what people call a soul or whatnot would be attached to the body even even in death and, you know, going through the yeah. the, the fiery yeah. pits of hell in a, in a crematorium. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, when you look at the, the history of, you know, human civilization, we, we do tend to, you know, preserve the body. And like I remember when I was at um, Westminster Abbey, the kings had, you know, they were in a sarcophagus, but at the top was, uh, you know, carving in stone of who was inside. So it's sort of this immortality, I think, trying to achieve immortality by mm. keeping the, the, the physical form um, around for as long as possible or trying to... Uh, keep it in the minds of other people through a statue or a grave or something like that. Yeah. Oh, we're weird people. We're probably programmed to be like that. That's that's why you know there's such you know a desire to mate and have offspring. To you know, that's a form of immortality passed on your genes to your children, and you know, they keep the you know the name too, keeping the family yeah, name going. Absolutely. And I guess you know depending on how you what your perception is of, of the situation itself. I mean, doing being an organ donor, you could probably fulfill some of those internal instincts of being a human by 
having the peace of mind that, you know, part of you is going to continue on at least for the foreseeable future in, in another person. And, yeah. um, and, that's, and that's probably good peace of mind for, as I said before, family and, and people that are close to that person that's, that's no longer around. So, yeah, I'll, I'll put a bunch of links up. I'll find some, um, what's the website called that people can go to to register? Donate Life. If Donate you just life. did a search, it'll be donatelife.gov.au, something like that. And I know there's a link where, um, yeah, you can click and register and you just fill in your details. You could, there's check boxes to say what you're comfortable being donated, like which organ being donated, and if you want tissue to be donated as well. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll put all the links up there, and I'll put I'll put the the details for for the um the charity race and and the fundraiser that that you've been a part of and even if uh, even if it gets to a point where someone's listening to this further on down the track um no doubt that link at least for the for the foreseeable future will still be active so they can have a look and see what the final final tally was that you've been able to to rack up what's it currently at the moment do you know oh i think it was like five five thousand five hundred something around there so originally when i started it only put 500 bucks on it but Mm. i reached that in the first day, so I thought, okay, I'll aim to power 50 hours of research. And then um, when the organisers said that they were going to use my story for publicity for this, then I doubled that to 100 hours of research, um, which I really didn't expect to get because um, um, some of the other uh, fundraisers had corporate backing, mm-hmm. and, um, and I thought I'll never better catch up with them, but I'll my sister's friends in particular are quite generous and, and, you know, a lot of people donated some big amounts, which, you know, I wasn't expecting at all, but, yeah, it pushed me pushed me to the top. So. Yeah. Oh, well, con- congratulations on doing it. It's, um, I think given everything that you've been through, obviously there's a, a will there to, to to make sure that, you know, if but when it happens to other people down the track that, uh, you know, the process is is there and, and, and the facilities are there and, and hopefully even down the track it's a, it's an even easier process. Yeah, well, you feel, I mean, I feel obligated to give back because, mm. you know, people have donated their time and, um, you know, given up their time to, to look after me and, and the research that I'm trying to fund, you know, it might not help me directly, but, but you know, the next generation of, of transplant patients Will benefit from it, mm. and and as, um, I mean, I've donated from those who have gone before me. If you know what I mean, so yeah, it's sort of a continual process of adding to the wealth and knowledge and advancing in uh, medical science. Absolutely. Oh, cool. I'll um. I'll put all the links there and people can check it out and I might um if anyone's got any questions they can they can leave some comments around the place and and I'll I'll direct you to them if uh, if there's any particular questions you might be able to answer and yeah I, oh, I yeah. think um yeah, yeah. it's sure. uh it's a pretty it's a pretty incredible story and I mean I just I had no idea I had no idea that um that that any of this happened and to that extent and that you you pretty much were we're, we're ready to go. So the fact that um, you got through it and you you are where you are now, and and I assume that as you said, like there's a there's still a period of time where you've really sort of got to stay on top of everything and make sure that you're monitored and whatnot. But how how are you tracking overall at the moment? I mean, it's been been a little while since it's all happened. Yeah. Well, I'm you know very science minded, so I did a lot of research before. You know, my transplant. So I sort of knew all the statistics, the survival rates, and what you had to do. And um, and 
One of them is if you can get through the first year without any rejection, and that puts you on a good course for a, a good long-term survival rate. Yeah. If you get rejection in the first year, then your long-term survival is, is greatly diminished. So I was very conscious of um, not getting sick, making sure my medication um, was always taken on time and properly and never forgetting because uh, you've got to keep immune system suppressed as it catches wind that there's foreign DNA living inside you, it'll, it'll try and kill it. And um, so, yeah, the, the main thing is making sure the, uh, you're compliant with your medication. Mm. And then sort of the second secondary thing is try not to catch anything because because I've got a suppressed immune system. If I get sick, um, you know, it can be life-threatening. So, you know, food poisoning can be life-threatening and influenza and um, uh other things as well. So, so that's a constant side to the, you know, life post-transplant that you've got to deal with. Mm. Well, um, yeah, obviously a, a small price to pay for, for everything you've been through. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Oh, cool, man. Well, I'll, I'll let you go and thanks for chinwagging with me. Yeah, no worries. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed that one. A bit of an intense episode, but... Uh, definitely something uh, that we should all be aware of and a lot of lessons to take away from that. Um, I think for anybody who hasn't been exposed or understands the whole process of organ and tissue donation, this is definitely hopefully an eye-opener for you and uh, an opportunity now to try and do the right thing by yourself and your family and the people that are close to you and also, I guess, the wider community as well to ensure that you've registered yourself and you've made sure that the people around you are well and truly aware that you would like to have your um, organs and tissue donated um, when you do pass on. And to be honest, uh, look, it's really, it's, it, it is a personal preference and I'm sure there's a lot of different beliefs that, uh, that have an impact on what that decision would be and those preferences. But uh, my perspective on it is that you've got no use for any of your body parts once you do pass on. So probably best that you ins- uh, pass them on to somebody that can get some use out of them rather than uh, let it all rot in the ground or get it incinerated. So uh, I will have a few links. I'll have a link to Sinclair's charity ride page where he's uh, raising money for uh, further stem cell research so that they can get to a point where they're uh, harvesting organs and tissue. So that will uh, alleviate a lot of the problems around um, the lack of um, donations out there in the community. Uh, if that, for whatever reason, that fundraiser is not um, still available and more than likely for a lot of people listening further down the track, it won't be, check, it, check out the link anyway and you can see what the final figure was. Um, there are a number of other initiatives and, and fundraisers around for the same sort of thing. So definitely do a search around the place. But I think um, at the very least, it's all about awareness and spreading the word amongst your family and your friends and making sure that people are aware of what your intentions are uh, in the event that uh, that you are uh, not able to respond and not able to communicate what your preferences are um, when you do do pass on. Um, I'll also have for Australian listeners the uh, the online government registry for organ and tissue donation. Um, so you can register on there and you can, there's actually a whole range of selection of uh, different body parts and organs and tissue and whatnot that uh, you can preference uh, the ones that you would like to pass on. My personal recommendation would be that you just select all because uh, as I said before, it's, they've got no use to you um, once you do move on. Uh, now I've recorded this outro 
quite some time after I actually did the uh, the episode and the intro, um, only because I was under the impression that Sedition no longer existed, and so that's Sinclair's uh, band. Um, but I've been pleasantly made aware that the band still does exist, um, just in the process of getting back out and becoming a live band again. But uh, So what I'll do is I'll put links to the Sedition website, and including the web store. Uh, there are CDs and T-shirts available on there. I'll even link to one of my more favourite or one of my favourite songs from that last album of theirs that was released a few years ago now. Um, so give it a shot. If you, love, if you love melodic rock or melodic metal, you'll have a lot of sort of 80s-influenced metal like Queensryche and and uh, Maiden, and uh, just trying to think of somebody else off the, off the top of my head, even Judas Priest, give this a shot. Um, it might be up your alley. Hopefully you like, and if you do, uh, sling a few bucks uh, Sinclair's way to grab the CD. Um, I think there are some talks about uh, having some shows in the near future, but as they are not confirmed, I won't uh, put my foot in it and uh, start uh, carrying on about uh, dates and anything like that. I'll, le- I'll leave that to... Uh, to Sinclair and the band to, to announce that when they're good and ready. But uh, great to know that they're still up and running and uh, and hopefully some uh, some more positive things coming from that end in the near future. Uh, final, final couple of things, housekeeping as always, get onto iTunes if you use Apple and rate and review the podcast. Uh, if you're using the podcast app, it's really simple. Just go to the show page itself. You can click on the tab that says Reviews where you can see all the other reviews on there and there's a, a link that you can actually write a review. So you first rate it out of five stars, then you can write a couple of words in there. So very easy process um, once you know how. So a couple of minutes of your time will be hugely beneficial to me. Uh, if you don't use Apple at all, then uh, there is Stitcher. I'm not sure off the top of my head. I should actually go and find out. Um, whether you can do any sort of ratings on there, but I believe you can leave comments. So any sort of comments or feedback will be great for me. Um, and I'm also on Omni now, so that's O-M-N-Y.com. Uh, for anybody that's familiar with that platform, the podcast is now on there, will be updated as uh, new episodes are released. So very new to that, so I'm still trying to get my head around how it all works, but uh, it's all about spreading the podcast on as many platforms as I can. So I'll it's more of a trial and error on that platform just to see uh, what sort of impact it will have overall. So we'll just see how uh, how future episodes fare um, in that uh, that new neck of the internet woods. Uh, also on YouTube, as always, so get on there. You can share those links because I know most people prefer, well, I shouldn't say most people, but a lot of people prefer to use YouTube uh, when they're listening to things. So you can get on there and share those links around and by all means leave some comments on the episodes as well to make sure that, uh, you know, they're all, all being active and looks like they're being interactive, uh, interacted with. Um, it definitely helps uh, get a bit more exposure and, and more people uh, listening to the podcast itself. Um, and as, as always, all the stuff will be posted through the Facebook page as well so you can listen to things there. But um, as a first base resource andysocial.net has all the show notes for all for this episode and all episodes has all the links to different platforms and uh by all means let me know if there's any other areas in the internet uh that i should be uh, airing this podcast as well i'm all ears as always and uh open to any suggestions that you guys might have final thing before i wrap up really quickly uh as i've mentioned in previous episodes the uh date for my little podcast party which i've yet to give a proper name to 
is May 28th, as I've mentioned previously, uh, and the details have slightly changed. So it will be at the fun room at Frankie's, Frankie's Pizza by the Slice, which is in Sydney CBD, and uh, now starts at 6 o'clock. You can get there a little bit earlier if you want to, uh, but I have um, full usage of the fun room, which is a private bar uh, that is normally open to the public from 9pm onwards. Um, but uh, Jordan, who is on episode 32 of the podcast, has been very generous and opened this bar up for me for three hours before it normally opens to the public. So if you're interested, come on down. As I've said for the last several weeks, I'm not promoting this anywhere apart from through this through this podcast itself. Uh, so it's up to you guys whether you want to bring more people along with you, um, but it's for you guys and it's just an opportunity to have a few drinks and and talk shit for a few hours. I'll try and add some additional things along the way to make it uh, a little bit more exclusive and special, but uh, for the most part, it's just a casual meetup and we can have a bit of fun. So more details as the weeks draw nearer, but uh, definitely mark that in your calendars. So that'll be 6 p.m. on the 28th of May, which is a Saturday. It'll be at the Fun Room, which is one of the private bars at Frankie's Pizza by the Slice. So all those details I'll continue to convey through here. And um, if you need to know where addresses are or anything like that, use Google. (laughs) Uh, But if for whatever reason there's any additional questions, just shoot me a message uh, via the usual uh, avenues that that are out there in social media land. That's about it. I've uh, got quite a few exciting guests coming up over the coming weeks. A hell of a lot of people I'm just trying to pencil in. Uh, it's very difficult to try and, um, I guess, align everybody's schedules together and I try and plan my week out to ensure I get as many uh, people on as possible. But uh, it is difficult. Everyone's quite busy, but that's partially why um, a lot of these people are quite uh, quite interesting and unique because they are busy people and they're doing something that's very different and exciting. So uh, I'll continue to get those people recorded and get those people on the episodes for you guys to listen to. And as always, if there's any any suggestions that you guys might have for future guests or anything to do with the podcast itself, um, I'm all about making this a wider community and um, having a lot more people involved in the podcast itself. So it's not just me crapping on and uh, living in my own bubble. This is all about uh, input and interaction with uh, everybody that listens as well. Uh, So lots of exciting things in the pipeline that I've got planned, but um, I'm always open to continue to talk to other people that might have some suggestions or advice along the way as well. So uh, until then, thank you so much for listening and there'll be another episode coming out very soon. Thanks, guys.